So we are, as I mentioned, beginning a new sermon series. I'm pretty excited about that. We're going to be doing the book of Romans. Um, I, I think every pastor who has a lengthy tenure at a church should probably preach through Romans at least once in his career, I guess you could say. And I've never done it. I've preached parts of Romans over, the to- over time, but I think this is, this is it. This is the time. I may never do this again. I don't know. We'll see what the Lord has, but it'll take us probably a year, maybe longer, to get through the entirety of Romans. Romans is arguably the most important book of the New Testament. In fact, Martin Luther, famous reformer, uh, said every Christian should memorize it, word for word. This is what he said, the letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth the Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, 16 chapters, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It is the longest epistle in the New Testament. If you don't know what an epistle is, that's a wife of an apostle. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what an epistle is. An epistle is just an old word for a letter. So this is a real, actual letter written by Paul sent to the church in Rome. Uh, The first, really the first eight chapters of uh, the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans deals with the gospel. It is probably the clearest, lengthiest definition of the gospel we find in the entire Bible. Chapters 9 through 11 deals with Israel and its relationship to the gospel. And then 12 through 16 really deal with the practical application of the gospel. Jesus came. He lived his sinless, perfect life, taught incredible teaching that just mesmerized the crowds unlike the religious authorities of his day, did multiple miracles, died a horrific, humiliating death on a cross, and in three days rises again and commissions his people to go reach the world. It's sort of like a nuclear bomb just hit the world (laughs) that affects everything, even to Rome. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection matter that much? That is what the book of Romans is trying to answer. We're just going to cover the first seven verses today, so you can open up your Bibles if you'd like. We'll have it on the screen. The letter to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The way you wrote a letter in the ancient world is you would begin by identifying yourself. You might say a few things about yourself. And then you would identify who you're writing to. And you might say a few things about the people you're writing to. Very different than today. Today we write, dear so-and-so, and then we end the letter with who's writing. They did it all right up in the beginning. That's what we're covering today. We're not even getting to the introduction of the letter. Just the greeting in the beginning. And we read this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, In the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, study, and application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Very simply, first, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Second, the gospel of God, as Paul identifies it, a world changer. And that's really from 2 to 6. And then we'll end by the recipient of this letter, the Romans. They are saints loved by God. The author of this letter is very clearly Paul. By the way, even the most liberal scholars don't really doubt that Paul is the author of Romans. Who is Paul? He was trained as a Pharisee. Now, there are different sects, there are different groups within Judaism. Uh, there's the Sadducees, there's the Zealots, and there's the folks at Qumran, the Essenes. Um, the Pharisees were probably the strictest sect. And of the different groups of Pharisees, Paul is part of the strictest one of all. Right? So he was brilliant, utterly brilliant. He was studied under Gamaliel, the famous rabbi. We know about Gamaliel even from outside the Bible. Uh, in Jewish history, uh, Gamaliel is mentioned. He was one of the best. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin was seen as sort of kind of an elite tribe within the 12. More than that, Paul was also a Roman citizen. To be a Roman citizen doesn't mean just that you were born in Rome. To be a Roman citizen was something that you either got bestowed upon you by Caesar himself, or you were the son or daughter of a Roman citizen. Paul is both a Jewish rabbi Pharisee and a Roman citizen. And within his sort of area of focus as a Pharisee, he took a special sort of pursuit in dealing with Jewish cults. So basically to put down false teaching. And in his passion and zeal, he specifically focuses in on a group of Jewish people who call themselves followers of the way. The word Christian wasn't even used at this point in time. Followers of the way that follow Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Paul begins to travel far and wide, this young, zealous Pharisee, to arrest men and women. So he would pull women away from their kids and drag them off to jail to kill some. In fact, Paul oversees the first follower of the way who dies for his faith, Stephen. And Paul sees this all as doing good for God. As he is literally on his way to a city to persecute the Christians there, uh, later called Christians, but the followers of the way there, seemingly out of nowhere, <laughs> an enormous light shines, and Jesus Christ himself appears to Paul. Paul falls down on his face, on his knees, he is blinded, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, which is his Jewish name, why do you persecute me? Understand that Paul never met Jesus personally, but Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Because as you pursue and persecute Christians, you are persecuting Jesus himself. And at that moment, his life is radically changed. 
He goes into the city, and instead of going there to, as he visits the synagogues, instead of going there to basically talk about the dangers of this false teaching, the followers of the way, he goes in and begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes and dreams. You can imagine the shock on a lot of the Jewish folks there in the city of Damascus when that happens. I mean, they are absolutely blown out of their mind, and Paul goes on from there and ends up stirring up the entire world, basically. And notice how he begins his lengthiest and clearest letter of the gospel. He describes himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. We use the more friendly term servant in a lot of our translations, but the word doulos basically means a slave or bond servant, one whose life now belongs to the true Messiah. Before he says he's an apostle, he's but a slave of Christ, now in the service of his Lord. He continues to say he is an apostle. What is an apostle? Literally, it means sent one, apostello. uh, But really, it just came to to be used as a term of really authority within the church, a place of authority. Uh, One who is able to basically oversee groups of churches and proclaim clearly God's will. And notice he says he's called to be an apostle. He hasn't earned the right to be an apostle. He hasn't studied up to a certain level to become an apostle. (laughs) He isn't good enough to be an apostle. He hasn't jumped through all the hoops that are necessary to be an apostle. No, he is called by God to this role and set apart for the gospel. That term set apart was used by the prophets in the Old Testament like Jeremiah. Set apart from birth to a specific role. Paul seems to be drawing on that. He is set apart for the gospel of God, the good news Of God redeeming human beings. Understand, he is stirring up the world. He is a missionary outside of Israel. So you got the 12 apostles, Judas replaced, of course, by Matthias, who primarily stay in the borders of Israel. They do at times go out, um, especially Peter and John, but for the most part, stay within Israel. Paul is going all over the world, and he is planting churches everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Thessalonica and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus and throughout Galatia and Crete. All of a sudden, there are all of these followers of Jesus everywhere because Paul is constantly traveling around preaching the gospel of God. More than that, he's discipling people. He's discipling Timothy and Luke and Titus and Silas and all of these new Christian leaders are starting to pop up and all of them are kind of saying, well, Paul's the one who sort of led me and discipled me towards this. Luke, by the way, who wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts was probably a close um, sort of companion of Paul and really was discipled in many ways by Paul. He gets arrested all the time, (laughs) wherever he goes, And while in prison, he doesn't just sit there and do nothing. He starts writing letters. He's constantly writing epistles. He's constantly writing letters to the churches. And what are the churches doing? They're receiving it. They're recognizing its sort of authority. They're keeping it. They're transcribing it. They're sending it to other churches. Very, very quickly after uh, Paul writes these letters, these are beginning to be received as equal to the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Even in Peter, the first letter of Peter, he mentions Paul's letters in line with, or on par with, the Old Testament prophets. He is a lightning rod. He actually has some controversies with the other apostles. He has the gall to confront Peter at one point, because he feels like his life wasn't in line with the gospel and is 
unwillingness to sit and eat with Gentiles. He really bumps heads with stricter Jewish believers called Judaizers. Even at times bumps heads with James, the brother of Jesus. And still today, Paul is a very controversial figure. Uh, Some people will say, I like Jesus, but I really don't like Paul. So they'll make a separation between the two of them. And Paul does this all with a single purpose. The gospel of God. The definition of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As atoning and redeeming for sinners. Even sinners like him, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Because he pursued and persecuted Christians and tried to stamp out the only message that would save us from this world. But God will save anyone through the gospel of God. Before we move on to define the gospel here, uh, God is still up to Paul's in this world. Just so you know. He's still up to it. He will save some of the most unlikely people. And use them for amazing purposes. Just a couple examples of this is uh, from the world of politics. Um, Chuck Colson. Do you know anyone know who, anyone know who Chuck Colson was? He was uh, Richard Nixon's advisor, political advisor. Went to jail for Watergate. While in prison, he hears the gospel, comes to faith in Christ, and starts a worldwide prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. <laughs> what an amazing story! Some of the most surprising academics come to faith. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, in the 1960s, he was said to be the most well-read scholar in the world. One of the most well-studied scholars in the world. He was antagonistic to the Christian faith. He was an atheist. He had a good friend named uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, ever heard of him, uh, who began to share share his faith with him. And Lewis said, this is all a big myth. Tolkien, why would you believe this? And he said, ah, but could this be the true myth that every other myth is based on? And at one point, Lewis says, he goes for a motorcycle ride to the zoo. He says, I left the house as an atheist and I arrived at the zoo as a Christian. (laughs) He began to receive faith. Uh, Journalists, I think of uh, Lee Strobel, who wrote uh, The Case for Christ, the uh, writer for the Chicago Tribune, whose whose wife came to faith, and it really bothered him, and their marriage is is getting divided because of the tension between them. Strobel decides to do this lengthy study of other um, Christians, but talking to different theologians, asking them, sort of hitting them with some hard questions, and eventually Strobel begins to realize the truth of the Christian faith, and comes to know Jesus. God saves the most unlikely people all the time. Also, the gospel causes controversy, just like it did in Paul's day. We are saved by grace through faith without ceremony or ritual or even good works. It's the mercy of God to redeem us and make us his own. Now, good works follow, and we'll talk about that, but there is no ceremony, no ritual, no good work you can do that will redeem you. And that God is calling people, like us today, as he did with Paul, to zealously go out and spread the gospel far and wide. To go to the nations. To be fearless about it. We're called to disciple others, as he did, raise up the next generation of leaders. If Paul didn't do that, Christianity might have fizzled out throughout the Roman Empire. We're called to write good Christian literature, as he does, that encourages other Christians and as he does also here, to engage Judaism. I thought Mitch's message was really helpful, that, how, the strides that have been made in that field. But then he begins to define the gospel itself. 
That's who Paul is, but what's the gospel? It is a world changer. Uh, The next section from 2 to 6 really basically lays out an explanation of the gospel. It is that which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And there almost certainly refers to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning his son. That this fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament comes in Jesus. According to one scholar, J. Barton Payne, there are 574 verses in the Old Testament that reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim said there's 456 verses. There's some debate as to how many verses actually refer to the Messiah, but there really is no debate in the fact that Jesus fulfills all of them, or will in time upon his return. That, that he is what the Old Testament scriptures have promised. That he is descended from David according to the flesh. That's very important because he is the Jewish Messiah. And Paul will spend much of Romans explaining that. The fulfillment of all the promises of scripture are found in Christ. He is the long-awaited king. That he was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That Jesus, of course, we believe, is eternally the Son of God. But here it's mentioned that he is declared with power to be the Son. When? At the resurrection. Again, Jesus lived his life, did amazing miracles, but ended up dying a humiliating death on the cross. We know that that is atoning. That's his death in our place. But what proof do we have of that? What evidence have we have that Jesus really is who he said he is? We have the resurrection. It's God's declaration with power that, his, that Jesus really is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. And it's through him we receive grace. And Paul, some, like Paul, received apostleship to bring about obedience, the obedience of faith to the nations. By the way, the obedience of faith, you may have the NIV that says the obedience that comes from faith. That may be the right interpretation, but it is an interpretation. The obedience of faith could just refer to obeying the call to believe. So we're called believe in Je- to believe in Jesus Christ. When we do it, we've obeyed faith. <laughs> if we refuse to do that, we reject Christ, then we are not in the obedience of faith. Or it could refer to the obedience that comes out of faith. When you come to know Jesus, your life begins to be transformed and changed and altered, and you begin to live for Jesus. But no doubt, the go- this gospel is a world changer. It is, its scope is, is all-encompassing. It's overarching. It is the meta-narrative, uh, the biggest meta-narrative of everything you could find. One uh, commentator said, The letter to the Romans provides the greatest remedy the world could ever know, Christ. To the greatest problem the world has ever seen, sin. And this remedy is available to the greatest diversity of people the world could ever produce, Everyone. (laughs) So a message for every human being that deals with our greatest problem, which is sin, and gives us the greatest and only true remedy of sin, Jesus Christ. (laughs) This is the biggest message that could ever be proclaimed. And by the way, we have the benefit of history to see this gospel actually be a world changer. It has shaped the world. It has shaped, certainly shaped all of Western civilization, by the way, but now much of the globe through the modern mission movement, and we're still seeing how the Christian faith is shaping the world. One uh, commentator, Tom, uh, one uh, writer, Tom Holland, who, by the way, I'm not even sure if he's a believer, writes, to live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated 
by Christian concepts and assumptions. The West, increasingly empty though its pews may be, remains firmly moored to its Christian past. How we see the world has been shaped by this gospel. When we talk about all people having value, that is not a natural inclination for human beings. In fact, most of history does not have that presupposition. Most of history is filled with devaluing people who we see as lesser than ourselves. And that was certainly true in Rome. When we talk about women and children and the disabled and the elderly all being equal and having value before our God, that comes from the spread of the Judeo-Christian faith. When we put this high priority on serving, which we just assume is right, that comes from the Christian faith. In Rome, to be a servant was to be lesser than. It was to be mocked. It was a humiliation. Nobody wanted to serve. You're supposed to lead, to dominate. When we recognize suffering as productive, as actually accomplishing something, that presupposition comes to us so naturally because of our understanding of the Christian faith. Everything, our literature, our art, even much of politics has been shaped by an understanding of the Christian faith. Even the idea of religious freedom. You know where you find religious freedom in this world? Only in countries that have a background in the Christian faith. The idea of soul liberty, that you can't force anyone to be a Christian. That it has to come from one's own individual conscience. The idea of religious tolerance comes from the foundation of the gospel. And we have seen how this gospel has transformed not only the world, but especially the Christian church. As many, many people have found grace and forgiveness in Jesus. We have this gospel today. We have the most powerful message the world has ever seen. Unquestionably. Countless lives throughout history and almost all civilizations on this planet shaped by this single message. The gospel of God. Friends, we should seek to go deeper. (laughs) Understand it more clearly. That's why I encourage you to get involved in a community group. Our community groups are pretty well attended. People are diving in deep to study the scriptures and understand it. Grab a commentary, especially as we go through this Roman series. Grab a commentary and maybe read along or use a study Bible. And I would just say, I know this is countercultural, but come to church every week. <laughs> and, and, and sit and follow this series as we go and continue to go through it. Be confident in this gospel. We need Christians today that aren't shy and bashful and diffident about the gospel, but are bold in their faith and willing to share and to challenge the world's sort of presuppositions about it. And friends, let's we as a church make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. So easy for a church to slip into other different emphases, other good things even. You know, focus on this particular type of ministry to this type, particular type of people. All that's good. But let's never make sure. Let's make sure we never miss making the gospel the main thing. Our primary message is that sinners can be saved through Jesus Christ. That any sinner, no matter how far they have wandered from God, no matter what their history and their past looks like, no matter what kind of sin or addiction or temptation they are stuck in right now, can find redemption through faith in Christ. 
And then he addresses in verse 7 those to whom he's writing, to the Romans. Uh, He writes to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Most likely, by the way, the Roman church was a fairly large church. Uh, We know that because of the final greetings in chapter 16. A lot, a lot of greetings, a lot of people in that church. So it's probably one of the largest Christian churches in the first century. And he defines them as those loved by God. Notice that, that the most important thing he can say about these Roman Christians is that it's not that they love God, although that's important. It's that they're loved by God. <laughs> if, if you love God and God doesn't love you, that's not a good situation to be in because all the authority and judgment is on his hands. But that's not the case. We are loved by God. We have his favor. And we love him in response. Called to be saints. Um, saint literally means a, a holy one. They're called to be a saint. They become holy through faith in Christ. And then your life begins to change by the Spirit's presence and you are made holy in actual practice. Every Christian is a saint, by the way. Every true believing Christian is a saint. The idea that a saint refers to an elite group of Christians comes much, much later in church history. And then Paul does his typical greeting, which is really meaningful, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Typical Roman or Gentile greeting was grace. Typical Jewish greeting was peace, shalom. He pulls them together. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this church in Rome? You've got to understand what this really means to write this letter to the Romans. Rome was the New York City of the ancient world. Even that doesn't give it true true justice. Uh, It was the first city in the history of the world to reach a million people. It was a bustling, happening place. It was the center of anything that really happened in the ancient world. Uh, Not far from the church, wherever they meet, would be Caesar's Palace. Not the one in Las Vegas. All right, so. (laughs) The actual palace where Caesar lives. Remember, Rome was an empire that spanned most of the known world and had drastically changed the world by two things, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Because Romans were so effective in their military, there was a relative peace in their day. Nobody wants to rebel against the Romans. Nobody has a chance to rebel against the Romans. So actually, it was a time of relative peace, peace through military might by the Romans, and the Roman roads. One of the things that the Romans really prized were their roads, that you could travel from one nation in the empire to another relatively safely, protected by Roman soldiers which, by the way, allowed the gospel to spread so much faster because of the ability to travel. Even the United States today, uh, not today, but back when it was founded in the 1700s, the United States of America based a lot of it on Rome. You know, the Roman uh, columns, the the eagle, the gold eagle, all this stuff kind of brings us back to Rome. Even if you ever see the old uh, statues or the heads, the busts of George Washington and Franklin, and they're sort of thrown back as if they're these Roman uh, uh, great men, great uh, sort of politicians there. Now, Paul has never been there. Well, at least he's never been to the church in Rome. He's never visited the Christians in Rome. He may have been to Rome, but he's never visited the Christians there. In fact, we don't even know how the church in Rome got started. My guess, and I think this is from a little bit of historical evidence, it was started by working missionaries. In other words, people who don't, aren't missionaries full-time. They're just people who are Christians, 
maybe a carpenter or in agriculture, a builder of some sort, who are transitory and they end up going to Rome because that's the capital. And they bring their faith with them and they start to share the gospel. That's most likely how the church in Rome, one of the most influential churches, gets started. There is a little evidence of this. Um, An early church father named Ambrosiaster, late 4th century, writes this, The Romans embraced the faith of Christ without seeing any sign of mighty works or any of the apostles. In other words, they they met none of the 12 apostles, nor Paul at this time, and saw no great miracles. Just the message of the Christian faith reached them. Lives were transformed and redeemed. We do know that Rome, of course, becomes later the center of Christianity. The Roman bishop becomes the prime bishop, later on called the Pope. And, of course, the Vatican gets built all around that area, and Rome is the center of Christianity in the empire for many years to come. But, friends, the message is true for us today as well. To all those in Haverhill, or Methuen, or Plasta, wherever you're from. All those who are Christians, you are loved by God. Think about that. You have the favor of the unmoved mover and creator of all things. He loves you. He cares about you. You're not just this little speck floating in an endless universe. God loves you. And you belong to him. You're called to be a saint. (laughs) You're called to holiness, made holy by Christ, and then to pursue a life of holiness. Grace is yours. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of all your sins, redemption from the slavery towards spiritual darkness. Adoption as a son or daughter and a glory that awaits you forever. Peace is yours. Peace with God. An inner peace, which is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and a peace with one another. Jesus Christ changes the world. There should be a long road in Romans. The message that changed the world. Romans has shaped the Christian church, no doubt, which has in turn shaped the world. Why? Because it is the longest, clearest explanation of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ever. Here's a little uh, sort of walk through how it's affected much of the Christian faith. Augustine, who lived very early in the 300s, probably the most influential theologian in the history of the church, one day was sitting in a garden, and he heard over the wall a child playing a game. And he heard the words, take up and read. Take up and read. At this point, Augustine is not a believer, not a Christian. and At any stretch, he loved his sin. He said, not only did I love my sin, I loved loving my sin, is what he describes it. When he hears take up and read, take up and read, he grabs a Bible and he opens it up. And guess where he opens it up to? The book of Romans. 
He reads this, Let us walk decently as in the daytime, not in partying and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensual indulgence, not in fighting and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ as if he is a robe and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. And Augustine, when he reads that, his life is transformed and he writes in his confessions, A light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. About a thousand years later, a young man named Martin Luther, we learned a little bit about Luther from Mitch's sermon. Uh, Luther was not a perfect man. In fact, towards the end of his life, he got a little bitter and angry and he ordered the burning of synagogues. We talked about that. But in his earlier days, he did start the Protestant Reformation. He struggled constantly with this idea of God and his law. He would go to confession as a, as a Roman Catholic monk. He would go to confession every single day. And he would go to his confessor and confess every little sin and picadillo of his life, so much to the point where his confessor said, Martin, don't come back to me. <laughs> he said, until you commit a real sin like patricide, like killing your father. That's what he said to him. Don't come back to me. But he sensed, as a wise confessor actually, uh, Martin's struggle and said, you know what you need to do? You need to go back to the source. You need to go back to the Bible. And he sent him to a town called Wittenberg. And in Wittenberg, he was called to teach the New Testament. And it's through teaching the New Testament, and particularly the book, the letter to the Romans, that Luther's heart and life is transformed and the Protestant Reformation begins. He writes, after teaching on Romans, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. In meditating specifically on Romans 1.17, he said, Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. A couple hundred years later, a man named John Wesley, who started the Methodist denomination, all of Wesleyan theology, uh, very, very influential evangelist here in the United States as well as in England, is sitting in a room, and Martin Luther's commentary on Romans is read aloud. <laughs> it's on, from the book of Romans. And when Wesley is sitting there, he says this. He was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Friends, all that's happening in our culture. We've still got a worldwide pandemic, confusion over things like gender and sexuality, political and economic frustration. Let's get back to the word. Let's get back to the gospel together. Let's remember God's amazing love. Would you pray with me? Father, as we are reminded once again of the truth of the scripture and of the power of the gospel, Lord, I don't know what everyone here is going through. Some may be starting to struggle with doubts. Maybe some are starting to wonder about the truth of the Christian faith. May this series 
be an encouragement, a firm foundation to plant our spiritual legs on that we understand what this gospel has done. Maybe some here, Lord, are not even yet believers. They're just considering where they're at spiritually. May they find some good, solid, clear answers. Maybe some have sort of been relatively immature, spiritually speaking, for many, many years. And this is the time to dig down deeper and understand it. But Father, remind us again that we are loved by God, called to be saints, and to trust in the gospel of God that has transformed the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.